Bibles with me to uh, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Although we are having a congregational meeting next Saturday, um, we also want to make sure that you understand that we're also having a dinner, and uh, that dinner is open to everybody, and so we want to really welcome you to come. We have a hard time trying to have a holiday dinner around here because once Thanksgiving comes and Christmas, it's just so busy that we've moved it up quite a bit, So, but it's, it's for us to really celebrate and to be together, so I want to urge you, if you have time, to come out. Uh, this uh, Saturday evening and to have some good food and fellowship together. Everybody is welcome to that. We're going to be studying uh, Matthew 26 and then uh, verse 69. And then we're going to read, I'm going to read through through chapter 27 and verse 10. This is one of those um, places in the Bible where the chapter division runs at a, at a place that breaks up two things that Matthew clearly, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thought should be together. And so um, when the Bible was originally written, there were no chapters and verses. It was just written out. And uh, so sometimes the chapter divisions divide in a place that actually isn't real helpful. This is one of them. And so what we're going to look at today is actually two people. We're going to look at two people, and we're going to look at them in depth. And the two people that we're going to be looking at are Peter and Judas, all right? And so keep, keep that in mind as we read this section here. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 69. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and the servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of, Na of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you are also, you also are one of them for your speech betrays you. And then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, They took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, 
whom they, uh, whom they of the children of Israel priced and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, please help us as we study these two men and these two tragic events in both of their lives and how and yet there's something very different about these men and something different about the outcomes. Father, please help us, we pray, for we are men and women we are boys and girls here in this place who also ourselves are tempted many times to, to deny you, to um, shy away from identifying with you, to being pressured by the crowd into silence. And We just pray that you'll help us. We pray that you'll be with us and we pray that we can learn from these things. We ask that you will just give us grace now. Give us grace, we pray. You've inspired this text. You've put it in this place. Help us, we pray. Help us to understand what you have here for us, for us individually. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at these two men. We're going to compare and contrast Peter and Judas and we're going to look at their two responses, and then you're going to obviously see there's two huge outcomes here as to what happens with these two men in their lives. And even now, even right now, the difference between what those two men are experiencing right this minute. But when we get into the details of this, though, I have some very practical issues that I would like to really use this text, because it comes out of this text, to deal with for us as Christians and to help us. And one of them is this. The fear that Christians have, serious-minded Christians, people who take their faith seriously, we can tend to have a real fear over some things that Jesus has said. And those that I'm referring to are these. We'll put them on the screen here. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Or another one that you might be familiar with, Mark 8, 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The reason why I say that these verses scare Christians is, is that we've all chickened out. I mean, honestly, let's be honest. If you're serious about your faith and you've been trying to live it out and you've been trying to call people to Christ and you've identified yourself as a Christian, you're not some kind of hidden closet Christian, which there isn't such a thing, but you're not that kind of person. You, you, you're, you're aware of the fact that there's been times when you've chickened out. There's been times when you've been silent and you should have spoken. There's been times when you've tried to avoid a conversation because you knew where it was going and you didn't want to be embarrassed. There's been times when you've changed the subject. There's been times when you and I have distanced ourselves from Christ and in, out of fear from what other people were going to think, out of a desire to please men. And that scares us then when we read passages like this that, Will Jesus do the same thing for me now in that final day? And so that's a very real practical issue, and we're going to deal with that uh, as we look at this text. The second real practical issue that I want us to focus on, and that is the nature of true repentance. You're going to find that there's two men here, Peter and Judas, and both of them deny Christ, and both of them feel really, really bad about it. 
and yet the outcome of their repentance and, or, or supposed repentance is different. And that has to do with the nature of true repentance, and we're going to look at that. And finally, we're going to look at, and what's going to be kind of woven through this or look for it is, the difference between a true believer and a hypocrite. And that's what you're going to see here as well. So let's begin with two, the, the fact that we have in this text two different men, okay? Two different men. Now, actually, outwardly, there's a lot, up to this point in their lives, there's a lot that's the same about these two men. Number one, they were initially very strong followers of Jesus, very excited about Jesus, and very much a part of him. Number two, they started following him as a disciple. But number three, both of these men were appointed by Jesus to be apostles. And apostles, there was only 12 of them, apostles. And the apostle was a very, very important role. It's a one-time thing. It's never to be repeated. And both of these men were invited to be apostles. Both of these men then left everything and spent three very intensive years living with Jesus every day, in and out, watching him teach, ministering with him, being sent out by him. Even both of these men went out preaching and teaching, and both of them were empowered to cast out demons and heal people. Judas did that, as well as Peter. And so both of these men, in many ways, were the same. And yet, when we get to this text, we're noticing there's some very, very great differences between these two men who outwardly look like they're the same. First of all, you have Peter. Peter is clearly a passionate follower of Christ. Peter loves Christ. He follows him passionately. And Peter, in fact, in this text, has stuck with Jesus longer than anybody else. All of the other disciples have fled now. Gethsemane has come. The arrest has come. All of the disciples have fled. But Peter has stuck it out. He's following Jesus from the far. And he actually goes into the high priest's courtyard there while Jesus is on trial. So while the trial is going on and people are coming in and out, false testimony, false witnesses coming in and out, Peter is there being, staying near Jesus. But Peter gets overwhelmed by the moment. He gets overwhelmed by the danger. He sees that the trial is going very, very strange. It's odd. It's, a, it's, it's been rigged already, and Jesus is going to be condemned. And Peter gets overwhelmed by the danger that he's at in the moment. And as he gets overwhelmed, he denies Jesus three times. In fact, notice what happens here. It says in verse 69, Peter sat outside the courtyard, and a little servant girl came to him saying, You were also with Jesus of, Naz of Galilee. And he denied it before them, saying, I don't know what you are saying. In fact, you're going to notice that these denials actually get more intense and more direct. The first one, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just standing here warming my hands. I'm, I don't know what you're talking about. And then it says this, but he's, so he's denied in that sense. I, no. I, I, who, Jesus who? What are you talking about? Verse 71. And then he had gone out to the gateway. So he kind of gets, he kind of wanders out to the gateway. So there was this big gateway there that you had to come through. And then there was a courtyard. And then there was probably almost like an open villa in there where the Sanhedrin Jesus is and the, and the trial is going. He wanders out to the gateway to just kind of take some of the pressure off. But when he had gone out, verse 71, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. So here Jesus is identified as being Jesus of Galilee, now Jesus of Nazareth, okay? And yet, and again, he denies it, this time with an oath, I do not know the man. 
He's, 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 he's saying by way of oath, I swear, it's like he said this, I swear to God I do not know this man is. I swear on my mother's grave I don't know who this man is. It's an oath. That's what he's doing. Now, it's interesting that these two girls, these two young servant girls, knew that Peter was with Jesus. And that, that kind of fascinates me. We don't know the answer to this, but you almost get a sense that they've been following Jesus from afar as well. Okay, they've been interested in this man, Jesus. But again, he denies it. Then in 73, a little bit later, those who stood by him, Peter said, surely you are also one of them because your speech betrays you. How does Peter's speech betray him? He has a Galilean accent. Galileans were sort of the rural, uh, sort of the, the, the country bumpkins and that. And now they're down in Jerusalem and he has this Galilean accent and they pick up on it. And so then they say, no, you were with him. Now it, it's intensifying. And notice how he goes from saying, I don't know what you're talking about to he says in, uh, he says in verse 72, I don't know the man. But now look what happens in verse 74. And he began to curse and to swear, saying, I do not know the man. And so he's, he's amping up. He's amping up by cursing and swearing. Now, kids, kids, please listen to me. Peter is not saying swear words here, okay? That's not what he's doing. That's not what it means. Phoebe, you, you track with me here, Phoebe? She's there. Kids, this is not swear words, okay? Peter is not saying bad words, saying swear words. By the way, if you say bad words and you say swear words, kids, that is very degrading to you. Now, some kids are going to tell you, oh, man, it's cool, it's cool. And you're going to get to a point where kids are going to start saying bad words. And when they say a bad word, everyone's going to go, whoa, whoa. And he's going to act real tough because he can say those bad words. But the truth of the matter is that bad words degrade you. You have been made in the image of God. You're a glorious being made in the image of God. And if you're a Christian, Jesus bought you with his blood. And so that filthy kind of degrading stuff shouldn't come out of your mouth. It shouldn't. Now, Peter's not doing that. In fact, the words that's being used here for swear and curse don't, doesn't mean that he's cursing, he's, he's swearing, he's, he's saying a curse word. What it means is, is that he's calling down a curse on himself if he's lying at this point. And what it means by swearing, it's like when a person swears on a Bible. That's the word that's being used here. He, he's saying something like this. May God strike me dead if what I'm saying isn't true. I don't know that man. He's saying something like this. God is my witness. I swear to God, so help me God. When Kids, I'm still with you guys here. When I was a kid, I don't know if you guys still do this anymore because it's been so long since I was a kid. I don't even know what's going on anymore amongst kids. But... Uh, when I was a kid, when we wanted to, to really make people know that we meant what we were saying, we would say this, cross my heart and hope to die. And then some people said, stick a needle in my eye. Now, you see what that is? Cross my heart and hope to die. I'm telling you that what I'm telling you is true. Cross my heart and may I die right now if what I say is true, or at least somebody come along and stick me in the eye. All right? That's what Peter's doing here. He is saying, there, may, God, may God strike me out of heaven right now if what I'm saying isn't true. I don't know this man. All right? And that's what Peter's doing. He's denying Christ. And yet, this is an interesting man because this man loves Jesus. This doesn't seem to be in character with him. We're going to come back to that, but let's go to Judas now. Judas is another man. He's another man. He's an apostle. He's just like, in that sense, just like Peter's been with Jesus all these years. But Judas 
when he's presented in, in the Bible, is a man of a very flawed character. This is a very, very different man. In fact, listen to John. The, the Gospel of John gives us most insight into Judas. And listen, I'm going to put some, uh, they're going to put some up on the screen here for you. Listen as we track Judas through the book of John. John chapter 6 and verse 70 to 71 says this. Jesus answered and said, did I not come to, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? Jesus said, one of you has the character of a devil. He spoke to, of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, who, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the 12. Then uh, six chapters later in John chapter 12, uh, the woman comes and she anoints Jesus with oil. And it says this, then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray Jesus said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Here he's showing a great concern for the poor supposedly. But then John writes next, this he said, not that he cared for the poor. Judas didn't care about the poor people. But because he was a thief, there was only one poor person Judas was caring about, himself. He was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put into it. So money that was given to Jesus, Messiah, money that was given to further the kingdom, money was given for their support, money that was given to take care of the poor, Judas would take and he would spend it on himself. And then the next chapter, it says this in John 13. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Satan entered Judas. Judas was open, as it were, to satanic influence. Satan enters him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. They didn't have a clue what was going on. What's Jesus telling them to go do quickly? And then John writes this, for some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Notice here, Judas is a hypocrite. Judas was, was acting like he was in, all in, and he wasn't all in. Judas was thinking primarily about himself. Judas was a thief. Judas was callous to the needs of the poor. Judas would take money that was spent to help poor people buy food and poor people buy clothing, and he would take it, and I don't know what he would buy, steaks, what would he buy? I don't know what he would buy with it, but he would spend it on himself. And Judas was a person in this also. Now, check this out about Judas. Judas was a really, really, really good hypocrite. He was a super good hypocrite. Nobody knew he was a hypocrite. When the disciples actually, when Jesus said somebody was going to betray me, the disciples say, Lord, who? Lord, who? who? Which one of us is a hypocrite? And when Jesus said to, to Judas, go, you're going to go betray me, go betray me and, and, and such, go get some more money, make some more money with your 30 pieces of silver. They said, what's Ju Judas must be going out to buy food. Judas must be going out to help the poor. And John, on hindsight, realizes Judas never went out to help the poor. He was only thinking of himself. Judas is this amazingly, really good hypocrite. And there's another interesting thing about Judas, especially near the end of his life, as we see here in the book of Matthew. Judas does not refer to Jesus as Lord. He refers to him as rabbi. Look at, look at Matthew chapter 26 and verse 22. Look at Matthew 26, 22. Jesus announces that one of them is going to betray him in verse 21. And notice what happens. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? But then drop down to verse 25. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? 
And then look at verse 49. When Jesus, Judas comes to betray him, verse 49, it says this, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. No, Lord, he's rabbi. So there's two very different men here. And notice there's two very different responses, although initially they look like they're the same response. Notice there's two very different responses to what they do, okay? Now, go back to Peter now. Back to Peter. Peter goes and Peter denies the Lord three times. Now, Jesus had told him that he was going to do this, and Peter denied it. And so then Peter denies Jesus three times. And as soon as he's done denying him the third time, it, look what it says in verse 74, and immediately the rooster crowed. Immediately the rooster crowed. And at that moment, at that moment, Peter recognizes exactly what he had done and what Jesus had said would happen. You see verse 75, Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. At that moment, Peter realized he failed miserably. He denied his Lord. He, he, he disassociated from him. God was all the bravado, all the bravado of Peter. See, Peter, earlier on that night, Peter said this, if they all betray you, if they all deny you, I will never deny you. And Peter went on to say this, if they all run away, if they all run I won't run away. I'm ready to die for you. And those words must have just been a ton of weight upon him. He must have felt just so much grief and remorse that he was the bragger. He was the one who said he was best of all. The other guys denied Jesus by running away. Peter now denies him verbally with his mouth in front of all of these people at the horrible moment of his actual trial while his trial is going on. You want to know something? A careful study of the word of God tells you that Jesus heard and was aware of what was going on. In Luke twenty-two sixty-one, 61, one of the most tragic verses in the Bible, really, it says this. Luke tells it, uh, this what was going on. It says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Jesus is bound. Jesus is undergoing this false trial. Jesus is being humiliated and spit upon. He turned and looked at Peter. When Peter made that third denial, Jesus looked him in the eye, and Peter could look up and see Jesus. And Jesus turns his focus away from the trial while foolish things are going on in that trial, and he turns and he looks at Peter, who denied him. And it says, and he said, and he said now how he Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he said to him before the rooster crows three times. And what does the Bible say Peter did? It says that Peter then went out and wept bitterly. Peter was completely undone. He had completely fallen apart as a man. The big, strong, brave fisherman, the big leader amongst men, first amongst equals. And Peter's a great man. Let's not take that away from him. Peter cries like a baby, he cries bitterly. He cries profoundly. He cries deeply because he has denied his Lord whom he loves. Judas, on the other hand, in chapter 27, it says this, that finally the verdict is made and the verdict is that Jesus is going to be executed. Verse 3, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. What's going on here? Judas, for some reason, didn't think that his betrayal was going to lead to Jesus' execution. 
For some reason, Judas might have thought maybe they'll beat Jesus. Maybe they'll, they'll, they'll whip him and send him free. Maybe Jesus will get, will get uh, notched down a few notches. P G he, Judas no longer believed he was Messiah. Maybe he can go out and do some good again. Maybe he'll just slink back to Galilee and never be heard of again. But Judas, once realizing that they're going to actually execute him, he, he has, and notice what your Bible, now the New King James translates it like this. He was remorseful. And it's an actual specific word that doesn't mean repentant. It's a very weak word. It means regret. He regretted it. My bad. That's what he meant. But notice what Judas does next. He takes the silver. He takes it back to the chief priests and elders. And what does he do? Verse 4. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, that's a very interesting statement. Because here's an enemy of Jesus, here's a betrayer of Jesus, but here's the man who knows more about Jesus to betray him than anybody else does. If anybody could have given testimony to that trial, if anybody could have had Jesus uh, 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 given inside information and been an inside witness against Jesus, it would have been Judas. Judas lived with him for three years. If, if Jesus had done anything wrong, if Jesus had sinned, if Jesus had sinned in any way, Judas could have been the guy who told him about it, but there was nothing to tell. Jesus was absolutely innocent. Jesus was completely sinless. And it dawns on him. They're going to execute an innocent man. They're going to execute him. And this blood is on me. And so he takes the silver and he says, here, take this silver back. He's an innocent man. You're doing wrong. And they answer, look at verse 4. They answer, what is that to us? You see to it. This is your problem, not ours. Then Judas takes the coins and he throws them in the temple. And he departs and he goes out and he hangs himself. He commits suicide. Then the chief priests, and I'm not going to go into detail, but it's sickening. The chief priests say, oh, we can't use this money and put it in the church temple where they're sacred. Why? It was your money. You gave it. You motivated it all. Oh, no, this is blood money. We can't do that. And you can tell their own guilt at the horrible thing that they're about to do themselves anyway. And they buy this field and such. And then Matthew says it's, it's a fulfillment of Scripture. But notice the difference between these two men. One weeps bitterly and one hangs himself. One weeps bitterly, but within 24 hours, we see him back again with the group of disciples. One weeps bitterly, and yet he brings the disciples back together. They're back together again. And in fact, when Jesus appears, after he appears to the two women, Peter's the first person that he appears to. There's two passages in Scripture that tell us that he appeared to Peter first before he appeared to all the rest. One of them takes his own life. Why? What's going on here? They both seem to be repentant. They both felt bad. What, what's going on? What's the nature of repentance? And to that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to a very important passage. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And this is going to be a very, this is a very important passage, and it's a very important passage helping us as Christians to understand the true nature of repentance. Because you and I need to be constantly living lives of repentance. But there's a very, this, this passage will help us to understand the difference between Jesus, uh, Peter's repentance and Judas's repentance, between true repentance and false repentance, between genuine repentance and surfacey repentance, between deep repentance and shallow repentance. And that's what you're going to see here. Now, the second Corinthians, of course, follows first Corinthians. And in Paul's first letter, Paul was challenging the church in Corinth to exercise church discipline against a man who was actually living with his father's wife. 
Now, that's not his mother, his father's wife. And what probably happened here, either his mother died or his father divorced her or his father had multiple wives. But either way, dad shows up with a trophy wife and she's about the same age as the son. And the son and the, the, the dad's wife get a, d develop a relationship and then they start living together and then they actually, for some reason, start coming to the Corinthian church and, and acting like they, in their Christian liberty they can do all this kind of stuff, the kind of stuff that's happening today, the way people talk misuse Christian liberty. And Paul writes to them and says, you need to deal with this. You need to deal with this. You can't tolerate this. And the church listens to Paul and they obey him. But it was a very hard letter for Paul to write. And so look at verse 8. Paul says this. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, the first letter, I do not regret it. By the way, that word regret there is the same word that was used of what Judas felt. He felt regret. See, notice this is lighter than repentance. Paul didn't say, I wept bitterly because I wrote you that letter. He said, I felt bad about it. Although I did regret it, I, do not, I don't regret it now, although I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle letter made you sorry though only for a while. This letter made you feel bad, but you needed to feel bad because you were doing wrong. Verse 9, now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Okay, sorrow, feeling bad, led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. And so their sorrow is going to... Now, notice here. Notice verse 9. There is a sorrow that leads to repentance, and there is a sorrow that causes us to sorrow in a godly manner. And he's going to compare that to a different type of sorrow. Look at verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, this is very important. See, because Peter felt sorrow. Judas felt sorrow. Peter's sorrow led to repentance and salvation. P Judas's sorrow led to death. Godly sorrow leads to restoration and healing. Worldly sorrow leads to destruction and death. What does this mean? Well, when a person sins and the Holy Spirit begins to convict them of their sin and their sin becomes real to them, they should feel sorry. We should feel bad when we sin. When we do something wrong, we should feel bad. We should be upset. We should be broken. We should feel guilty. We should feel sad. We should be frustrated with ourselves. We may even weep, weep bitterly because of our sin. But what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit uses this in a person's life to lead them then to repentance to lead them to change, to lead them to then positively move and to make it right, to confess their sins, to come to the cross and find those sins forgiven, to find God's grace and then find God's power and motivation to move forward and to change and to act. Worldly sorrow doesn't act like that. Worldly sorrow feels bad when it sins. Yeah, it may. Feels bad when it sins. Upset, perhaps. Broken, guilty, sad, frustrated. S Judas felt all of that. But then Satan gets involved. Satan gets involved in worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow that doesn't turn to God, that worldly sorrow then deepens into depression. It deepens into lethargy. It deepens into why try. It deepens into beating yourself up. I'm a, I'm a total failure. It beats you into, yeah, I've been down this road before. I know you're trying to repent. I'll do it again. 
It makes you want to quit. It makes you question, maybe I've never been a, 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 a Christian. And, and it, it, it gives you sorrow, but it gives you no way out. That's what worldly sorrow does. And that's why worldly sorrow leads to death. And Judas felt he had no way out. And so he took his own life. I've, I've, I've counseled with people who, who have just been, they have no hope in Christ. They, have, they just have worldly sorrow. And they'll even say something like this. And never say this, dear friends. Never say this. And if you feel it, Repent. I know God can forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. See, that's worldly sorrow. And in fact, by saying that statement, you just made yourself way more important than God. Yeah, God, that minor league player, he can forgive me. Yeah, sure, God can forgive me. But oh, the great God, me, can't forgive myself. That's worldly sorrow. What does godly sorrow produce? Well, look at verse 11. This is how you see the nature of true repentance. Verse 11. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. Now notice here in the New King James, there's a colon there, which means at this point then I'm going to describe what I just meant. What is sorrowing in a godly manner? What does godly repentance look like? And notice the words that he uses here. What diligence it produced in you. Now he's saying, listen, you guys repented in a godly way as a church about this matter. And this is what I saw in you. But this is what you will see in true godly repentance. What diligence does it produce in you? What that word means, that word actually means speed. It means energy. It means going to do something. If somebody rolls up their sleeves and gets to work. You guys didn't just sit there and say, oh, woe is me. Oh, I'm just so bad. Oh, I'm so terrible. Oh, I'll never. Oh, I'll always fail. Oh, I'm just terrible. That's worldly sorrow. This sorrow says, I was a jerk, I was an idiot, I was stupid, I sinned, I did wrong, I hurt, Lord, please forgive me. And then it gets up and rolls up its sleeves and says, I'm going to make this right. Notice what it says next. He says, what diligence it produced in you. Then notice next, what clearing of yourselves. You go and you make it right as much as you can. You apologize. In fact, the word here is the Greek word apologia. You apologize. You make restitution. If you slandered somebody or defamed their name or you gossiped, you go and tell people, hey, what I said was wrong. What I did was wrong. That person isn't that. I slandered them. It's my sin. It's not theirs. The clearing of yourselves. Notice the next one. What indignation. Get angry with yourselves. Dear friends, forget the coddling psycho babble that we hear today in all this therapeutic culture that we live in. Oh, you got to feel good about yourself. you got to be affirmed about yourself. That is killing people. You need to get angry at yourself at times. You need to say to yourself, stop being such an idiot, Todd. How dare you treat your wife like that? How dare you speak to people like that? How dare you with that stupid pride that you have? How dare you uh, speak, some, speak so evil at somebody? Stop being that. Stop this. Be angry at yourself. Have a righteous anger at yourself. And Paul says, what indignation you had. The Corinthian church says, what's the matter with us? We shouldn't be doing this. Notice the next one. What fear? That's the fear of God. That's the fear of God. What pride? What self-confidence? What, what sins that I've done? I have sinned against the holy and majestic God. I'm going to make this right. Look at the next one. What vehement desire. There's nothing lackadaisical about this. Look at the next one. What zeal. And look at the next one. What vindication making this thing right, and I'm going to prove that I make it right. You see, dear friends, that's what Peter was doing. 
Peter went out there and he wept bitterly. But he wept and he was on the ground and he wept and he may have wept for hours and he felt horrible at himself and he felt horrible about his sin. But within 24 hours, we see him back together. We see him with the other disciples. And we, and in three days, on the third day, we see him present as still a follower of Jesus, still back in. Judas, on the other hand, Judas, on the other hand, he had false repentance. And here's what false repentance, one of the things you can come from this is this. Tears and mere remorse does not true repentance make. Dear friends, I have seen this time and time again, and it's sickening. I was asked to be involved in helping a church out and uh, helping them through some difficulties. And I finally concluded, I said to the leadership of this church, I'm going to conclude there's a faction in this church that are mean-spirited, selfish, hurtful, angry, terrible people. And they're just beating up on the rest of the congregation. And once they've beaten you up verbally, once they've made fun of you, once they've lashed at you, once they've pressured you, once they've done all that, and you're lying on the ground bleeding, they bring a casserole to you. And they cry. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you feel like that. And that's disingenuous. I've been in counseling situations. Sometimes it's the wife, but most of the time it's the husband. He's been violent toward his wife. He's been mean toward his wife. He's maybe even committed adultery. And there he is crying. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I committed adultery for the 13th time. I'm so sorry, honey. Will you ever forgive me? I'm so sorry. And I'm like, this is so disingenuous. In Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about Esau, and it says this, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau who for one morsel of solid food sold his birthright. Look at that. One morsel of solid food he sold his birthright. I would rather eat this food right now than have the God, the people that God will save unto all eternity be called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. I give all that up. That means nothing to me. I'm hungry. I need this food. And once he realized what an incredibly terrible thing he did, it says this, for you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with prayer, with tears. Tears does not repentance make. You might be sad of what you did. You might be sad of the hurts that you've done. You might be sad that you got caught. You might be sad that you're embarrassed. You might be sad that you've been made to look bad publicly. But there's no vehement clearing. There's no anger. There's no action. There's just tears. And that's the difference between Peter and Judas. So let's apply this to ourselves, dear friends. First of all, I'd like to say this. Genuine, godly people sin. We do. We sin in weakness. We do. Genuine, godly people get scared and chicken out. We do. It happens. We do. Does that mean that Jesus, you do that once and Jesus will never, ever allow you in his kingdom? No. Because if that was true, Peter wouldn't be in his kingdom. In fact, Peter didn't just do this once. He did it three times. In fact, Peter even did it after that. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul had to confront Peter and Barnabas, another apostle, and Barnabas, because they chickened out and they weren't living the gospel out and they started going with the Judaizers and keeping the dietary law. Elijah did this. 
There are great men of God who chickened out in a moment of weakness. But that was an anomaly for them. That wasn't their life of Christ. These people loved Christ. They loved Christ and they were for Christ and they lived for Christ. And the rest of their life showed that they lived for Christ. And I know that you here, you and I, we love Christ. We know Christ. We want to serve Christ. We want to glorify him. And if he gives us power and strength, we're willing to stand and tell anybody that we're Christians. We're willing to suffer for his name's sake. We're willing to die for him. There will be times, perhaps, when there's going to be momentary weakness, and we chicken out, and we're less than bold than we should be, and we become men-pleasers. What should we do then? Weep bitterly. Weep bitterly that you treated your Savior like that. Weep bitterly, dear friends. We should weep bitterly. I weep bitterly when I do it. And then get angry and roll up your sleeves and resolve never to do it again and ask for forgiveness that God would give you grace and be bold. Second line of application that we should learn from this is this. Dear friends, be real. Don't be a hypocrite. Be real every day. Judas should be a warning to us. He started off zealous. He started off zealous. But Judas had some deep roots of selfish ambition, deep roots of covetousness, deep roots of lying, deep roots of deception, and eventually he ended up leading a double life. Peter had selfish ambition. I'm better than all these guys. These chumps, these chumps will deny you. I'll never deny you. Peter had selfish ambition. Peter was a coward. Judas was a coward. Peter was a coward. But one found grace. One found forgiveness. One found the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. One found victory. One found eternal life. One found a life of usefulness. And Peter did eventually suffer death for Christ. Tradition has it he was crucified in that upside down. And he has spent 2,000 years in heaven. And one found his life was ruined. One found that he caused great anguish. One committed suicide. And he has been languishing in hell for 2,000 years. Peter said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 25 when they were replacing Judas, he said this, to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. That makes you shiver. Dear friends, it's very extremely important for each of us to ask ourselves on a regular basis, am I real or am I a hypocrite? Am I real or am I a hypocrite? One of the th questions that you should ask yourself, some of them which should be something like this. Do I love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I love the Lord Jesus Christ? Not do I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is Messiah, Son of God. That's important, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, do I love the Lord Jesus Christ? See, when Jesus restored Peter, what did he say? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And by the time, the third time, that question came out, Peter knew exactly what he was doing. I denied you three times, and now you're asking, do I love you? And Peter's answer was, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. I screw up, Lord. I I'm a chicken. I'm a coward at times. But you know deep down inside, I love you. Judas couldn't say that. Can you say that? 
Can you say that you love Jesus Christ? Do you hang upon Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Is he your hope? Is he your salvation? Is he your sin bearer, your sacrifice, your substitute? Do you find that that he is everything to you and you love him? That's, That's a true believer, not a hypocrite. How do you handle it when you sin? Do you grieve when you sin? Do you hate your sin? And can you say to the Lord Jesus, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I hate it. Please forgive me. Cleanse me through your blood. And Lord, I'm determined to live for you. Is the Holy Spirit at work within me? We should ask ourselves. Am I being changed? Is my sin being mortified? Am I growing? Am I being granted genuine repentance? Or am I slipping? Am I like a Judas? I came to Jesus all excited, all just sign me up. I'm all in. I'll leave everything. And now the world, covetousness, money, status, partying, maybe some illicit woman or man, something is in my life drawing me, and I'm finding my fires growing lower and lower and lower and lower until if this keeps up, there could come a time when I just walk away. And dear ones, when you do that, you will walk to hell. You will go to hell. There is a real heaven and there is a real hell. And when people die, they go to one of those two places. Hypocrites go to hell. Good, Bible-believing, Bible-carrying, Bible-thumping hypocrites go to hell. True lovers of Jesus who are genuine and real. And although we screw up every day in our heart of hearts, he's everything. He's the number one. He's our all in all. Lord, help us never to be ashamed of you. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, you live for us. You died for us. You didn't deny us. You went to the cross for us. You bled for us. You were nailed for us. You were buried for us. You rose again for us. You live for us. You're coming for us. You're preparing a place for us. And now you invite us to come to the most intimacy The world can know we can come to your table and remember your death. Dear Lord Jesus, help us. Help us all. Help every one of us in this place. And as we're sorting through our own hearts and souls right now, help us, we pray, to rest and to trust in you and in you alone. Thank you. Father, if there's anybody here who's come here and now feels very guilty, very burdened from their sin, oh, Father, help them not to sorrow with worldly sorrow. Help them to sorrow with godly sorrow and to come to you right now confessing all of those sins and finding them cleansed and washed through the blood of Jesus. Father, help us. Make us genuine and real. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.